Lord, we love you. It's amazing how you take broken, tainted, what we might see as worthless vessels and accomplish amazing things through them. And Father, everyone in here is a bent nail. And it's just whether or not we've surrendered to you, then we become your bent nail. And yet, Lord, you see us as perfect through the blood of Jesus Christ. But even though we may be wanting and frustrated and uninformed and unqualified, you do amazing, amazing works through us bent nails. So thank you for that. Lord, may we hear your word today from the Gospel of Luke. And we trust you, God, to open our eyes and our hearts as we remember the grace you give us every single morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We're just going to begin reading in Luke chapter 20, verse 19. If you got a a bulletin last week, you've already read it because we didn't do this last week. But um, we're going to read through it and get started here. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. You have to kind of go back and read earlier in Luke 20 to see to get context here. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, We know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? In verse 22, he says, But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar's. And he said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able, in the presence of the people, to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. So for us to fully understand what is about to take place in the final days of Christ's life as it is described within the Scriptures. We need to peer into a private room in Jerusalem. In this room are privileged men, and they're meeting behind closed doors. These are men with impressive titles and great power. They are the highly educated men within the Jewish community. They are not necessarily respected, but they are the honored. These men are in crisis mode. They risk losing everything if they cannot create an effective plan of action concerning Jesus. They understand who he is claiming to be. The question is, do they believe him? Now, this is interesting. Men who once strolled in public and flaunted their education and their position and their power, 
Jesus comes in to the temple. He clears the temple. He begins to teach at the temple. And they can't catch him at anything that they can defend. So now they are reduced to this. They go into a private room behind closed doors, and they have one mission. We have to find a way to bring this man down. But it's tricky. And we're going to see why that's so tricky. Now, they really hate this guy. They not only hate him because he is challenging them, they hate who he is. They believe his followers are nothing more than common people who do not know right from wrong or left from right. And they certainly are not shopping at Saks Fifth Avenue, if you know what I'm saying. This is what they knew about Jesus. He was the illegitimate son of Joseph, a carpenter. That's what they knew about him. John 6.42, they said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, Joseph <clears throat> whose father and mother we know? He was born, I'm sorry, he was from Nazareth, which was not a hip little village. John 1, 45 and 46 says, this is what Nathanael thought about Nazareth. He says, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now here's a cynical little quip. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? So it's not like he was from New York or Chicago. He was from a village. He was not strikingly handsome, uh, regardless of the movies. He was not strikingly handsome. How do we know that? Isaiah 53.2 said this, For he grew up before him like a young plant. And like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty. Like a root out of dry ground. You ever seen one of those? It's parched all the way around it, and sometimes the sun is so hot, it kind of cracks the soil, and this one little shoot peeks out. Easily stepped upon, easily removed. Had no form of majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. So the next time you see a movie about Jesus, might be interesting to watch. The other thing they knew is he did not fear them. John 19, 10 through 11 says this. So Pilate said to him, now I know this is in the future yet, but this is all, we're looking at all this as history. So he knew, they, they knew he did not fear him, fear them. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know? that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? This was Jesus' answer. You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. It's his way of saying, I'm not the problem. Even if you believe I sinned, according to God, he who has a greater sin is Judas. And of course, he knew he had no sin. So here's my point. There was nothing on the outside that would have set him apart from anyone else, except that he was kind of uncomely. May have been awkward even. 
He was probably not the kind of person that changed the room when he walked in. He wasn't like King Saul, who was tall and handsome, nor was he like King David, who was smaller in stature and yet easy on the eyes. His appearance did not compel you to take notice of him. He wasn't a celebrity by nature. Now, these things just flummoxed them all the more. He was not suitable material to be their king. You kind of get the impression that even if Jesus could have proven who he was, they still would have said, but you're not worthy. Matter of fact, we know they said that. So what did set him apart? Why did the leadership take notice of him? Well, we would notice him because of his miracles and his words. Earlier in the study of Luke, we learned that his miracles were to were a testimony that validated who he was. He didn't do them for the sake of doing miracles. Unlike some people today who claim to be healers or claim to be able to do miracles. All of his miracles were to validate that he's a son of God. No one else can say they're the son of God. So if he claimed to be God, there must be proof of this claim or he is a fraud. But it goes a little deeper than this. There's a gentleman by the name of Watchman Nee, long since passed, good teacher. And in 1936, he wrote a book called Normal Christian Faith. He says this, a person who claims to be God must belong to one of these three categories. First, if he claims to be God and yet in fact is not, he has to be a madman or a lunatic. Second, if he is neither God nor lunatic, then he has to be a liar, deceiving others by his lie. And the third thing is if he is neither of these, he must be God. Now, this is common sense, even philosophy to some degree. It doesn't take the Holy Spirit to be confronted with this and say, you know what, that's right. You can only choose one of these possibilities, he goes on to say. If you do not believe that he is God, you have to consider him a madman. Did he act like a madman? If you cannot take him for either of the two, God or madman, you have to take him for a liar. And if you cannot reason him to be a madman or a liar, then his claim of being God must be true. There's another point to this. Who would claim to be God if they knew it was going to cost them their life on a cross? Watch me. His point is undeniable. Whether you are... A believer or a cynic, Jesus must be one of the three. And regardless of the true identity of Jesus Christ being God, these leaders had decided that he was not God, could not possibly be God. How did they make that decision? Outward. Outward. And him being God would have cost them a lot. But what we will see is Jesus ultimately proven to be God and the leadership proven to be the liars and madmen. So there are a number of things that makes this secret meeting unique in all of human history. 
Now let's begin with who was in attendance. So point number, I got three points. I'm so proud of that this time. So on the flip side of your little scripture thing, there's three points. One is there was an evil alliance. On any other day, the men in this group that's hiding behind closed doors, trying to come up with a plan, they are foes of one another. They're not allies. They don't like each other all that much. So on any other day, they wouldn't even be meeting. And in reality, there is a long history of hatred from two of the groups towards the third group. First group is the Pharisees. They are the religious conservatives or fundamentalists. They are fanatic legalists, although they themselves do not heed their own laws. So they're hypocrites. But they are the fundamentalists. They are the fanatics on the law. The second group are the Sadducees, and they are the religious liberals. They do not believe in the resurrection. And the third are the Herodians. Now, the Herodians, you may remember, are the party that had pledged alliance to the Herods, King Herod. Antipater was the great-great-great-great-grandfather. Antipas, Herod the Great. And Antipater was the one that said, I want my family to have a heritage in Rome. So the Pharisees and the Sadducees hated the Herodians. They always sided with Rome because it was their political gravy train. It was Herod Archelaus who succeeded Herod the Great and dealt with a protest against him, becoming king over Israel, over Judea, by massacring 3,000 Jews who, who revolted over his claim to the throne. He later came back and crucified 2,000 over Passover. They hated him. All three in this room. For what purpose? They had a common goal. They're all fear, afraid of Jesus. Now, I think there's a fourth person in this room. And this is unusual. And I know sometimes we say this without thinking so much. We say that Satan is after me. We say that Satan is pursuing me. Probably not. Probably not. There's only one of him, and he's not omnipresent. See, I don't think Satan worries too much about Tom Shoemate or someone else. Now, he has generals to do that. He has demons to do that, and that's all well and good. Actually, it's very bad. But Satan is a master planner. We all know Satan's M.O., do we not? He absolutely hates God the Father. But if it is possible, he hates Jesus even more for two reasons. Although we may view this as some kind of cosmic rivalry, in reality, it is a personal vendetta as far as Satan is concerned. Jesus is the one through whom his final defeat and eternal humiliation will come. It's one of the reasons he really hates him. Jesus is the victor. The second reason he hates Jesus 
and he's trying to stop him, is it is through Christ's return to heaven that the Holy Spirit will be sent to those who belong to God. And Satan knows that once that happens, every believer in Christ is empowered equally with Christ. Not the same title, not the same makeup. We have the Holy Spirit, and I believe Satan is in this meeting. These are the players assembled on Tuesday night of the Passover celebration, and we know that they know how important their mission is because they would never have joined forces with equally despicable people as themselves. They didn't trust each other. This is a preordained conspiracy to plan an attack upon the Son of God. Who preordained this meeting? God. It wasn't Satan. It was God. God the Father ordained this meeting. So point number one is this. There was an evil alliance. The second thing is there's an evil plan. Their mission was to kill him. There was no doubt in their minds what needed to happen to Jesus. This had been decided long ago. A couple of scriptures. First, we see Satan's attempt upon the life of Christ. In Matthew two thirteen through 16, it says this, Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Verse 16, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from his wise men. It's always been Satan's plan to kill Jesus, because it's through Jesus salvation comes. Then we see the Pharisees attempting an attempt upon his life earlier in Luke. Luke 4.16 says this, And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. Verse 28 says this, When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with awe, filled with wrath. They were enraged. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Was that out of fear? Absolutely not. They were trying to kill him before the crucifixion. That makes sense? That's exactly what Satan was trying to do. He was trying to keep him from the cross. I was raised thinking God was trying to keep him from the cross. Satan's trying to keep him from the cross. Because that's where Satan's final dis- defeat is. Matthew twelve thirteen and 14 says this, Then he said to them, Stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. So this is not a new plan. It's not a new goal. The plans have changed. However, the more popular Jesus became, the more difficult it was to rid themselves of him. He became a political liability for all three groups. Now it's not just a spiritual thing. Now it's a political thing. We were made aware of this 
specifically in Luke 20:19, the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour because he had just given a parable that condemned them. And they heard it and they knew it and they were embarrassed by it for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. Why didn't they do it then? Because they had fear. They didn't fear him. They feared the people. Which is, by the way, why most of us cower when we cower. How many of you have more fear of people than God? Before you answer that, how many of you know that God will forgive you? Does that play a part in not standing up to people? They realized that he was becoming untouchable. And the people may not have recognized him as their Messiah, but they recognized him as a prophet. They recognized John the Baptist as a prophet. So the people didn't quite understand it. They still were not getting it. But what they did understand was Jesus had done so many different things that were provable. Now they're saying at the very least, he is a great prophet. And the law protects the prophets. Now they have a political issue. They have a political issue with Rome, and now they have a political issue with Israel. It's getting more and more complicated. They had recognized him as a prophet. They had won them, he had won them over. Everything he did was born of truth and compassion and mercy. Those who had been shunned and shamed by the Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, and chief priests had found mercy and grace and hope in the presence of Jesus. It's a good thing to ask ourselves about our church, is it not? This is what I found. It's easy to shun and shame the people the world shuns and shames. Because no one will rebuke you for that. I think it's one of the great questions that people in the church deal with. I wonder if people feel that way around us. I wonder if people who have been rejected by the world can find hope and mercy and grace in our churches or in our church. Here's a good question. Do we provide a way that the least of these... Do we provide a way for the least of these to become the most of what God calls them to be? And the most of what God calls them to be may not be all that impressive to us. but it's really impressive to God. Granted, we cannot live their lives for them, nor should we be enablers for those who choose to live in rebellion against God. And that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is seeing the same value in those the world rejects as we see in those whom the world celebrates. I understand there's a movie being filmed or something in where? Wellington. Liam Neeson, I guess. I don't know what it's about. don't know if I ever will know what it's about. But this is, this is what I know. If Liam Neeson is walking down the street in Wellington, everybody else is invisible. Oh, I would do it too. <laughs> wow, he's older than I thought. I got to go to Hollywood and get some makeup. This is what happens. Those who the world celebrate 
make other people invisible. And it's even easier when those whom they make invisible, the church ignores too. Can't do it. So we're beginning to understand the dilemma in which the leadership found themselves. If they were to, if they were to dispute Jesus' claims without evidence, they were in jeopardy of being stoned to death by his followers. There were literally thousands of witnesses to all that Jesus had done in the three years of his ministry. Thousands of witnesses. And most of them were probably there. Hundreds of thousands. I mean, Lazarus was there. The only thing Jesus did for Lazarus was, I don't know, raise him from the dead. By the way, they wanted to kill him too. Why? Because he was a tremendous witness of a miracle that Jesus did. They hate everybody that loves Jesus. Then it's so different than today? I don't think so. This included fantastic miracles, including immediate healings and altering the laws of nature, calming storms. He'd raised the dead, fulfilled prophecy after prophecy after prophecy. The leadership knew that no challenge to him, that every challenge to him would be a form of suicide. Politically, financially, maybe even physically. They could not call him a madman, nor could they accuse him of lying. In other words, all the evidence pointed to Jesus truly being the Son of God. But in their eyes, that just could not be. So here's their challenge. According to the law, if anyone falsely claims to be God, he is guilty of blasphemy, which is punishable by death. Here is their problem. They did not have the authority to carry out a death sentence. It was only Rome who could do this. So it's a kingdom within a kingdom. And here's Rome's philosophy. It's better that you rule yourselves because there's going to be less rebellion, but you cannot do these things. And capital punishment was one of them. And even if they could put Christ on trial and convict him of blasphemy and carry out this execution, the crowd wouldn't stand for it. So what changed the crowd from that to saying, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him? It's interesting. We're getting, we're, we're getting there. The real purpose of their secret meeting on that night was to devise a plan to rid themselves of Jesus Christ in such a way that the people would turn against Christ instead of them. And the solution to this problem was to create a way for Rome to do their dirty work for them. Because the Jews hated Rome. If they could convince Rome that Jesus was a threat to the state, they were convinced that Rome would have to take action. Especially at Passover. Why would that be so convenient? Hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people would witness the death of the man that they thought came to save them. All at once. No CNN, no Fox News. No satellites. And there's Satan. And he's in the midst of this. So this leadership says, if we can just convince Rome to take this off of our hands... 
When all of these people are here, they're all going to witness what's, what's going on and it, the word will spread that he was an imposter. So we read the following scriptures, how they decided to build their case against them. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere. Why? That they might catch him in something he said. Why? So as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So now who are the liars and deceivers? Just like they've always been. And aren't you glad that we are not so foolish as to try to deceive God as they did? And yet most of us continually try to justify or make excuses for our bad behavior and blame it upon our life circumstances, the culture, finances. What favorite excuse do you use to justify your sin? You can name it. Don't. You can name it. You can name the sin that you're always justifying, right? Here's a little hint. If you have to justify your sin, you have already admitted to God that you are already without excuse. Just by naming the sin and, and trying to justify it, that's proof that it's unjustifiable. So the first point was an evil alliance. The next was an evil plan. And finally, an evil execution. And I don't mean the execution of Christ. That comes later. The execution of the plan. So forming the alliance and devising their plan was only part of what needed to happen. The plan had to be executed. And this was the trickiest part. And it had to be executed in such a way that Rome would accept the evidence they gathered as sufficient to warrant the death penalty. Some movies, you'll, you'll have a guy saying, well, what's his, what's his crime? And this guy said, well, blasphemy. And the governor goes, and? That doesn't hurt the state. We don't care what he believes. We don't even care what he preaches. Are you paying your taxes? Yes. Is anybody speaking against Rome? Well, not that I would admit. There you go. It's your problem. Do you get this now? From Pilate to Herod. Pilate. Jesus is the pinball here a little bit. Because nobody wants to do this. But they find a way. So we read this opening salvo, Luke twenty twenty one. This is the Pharisees' leadoff hitter. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. So who are the they in this verse? Well, we learned that in Matthew. Matthew twenty two fifteen says this, Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words, and they sent... Now, did the Pharisees go? No, they sent their disciples to him. 
along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. That's in Matthew twenty-two fifteen. So we have a little more of an account there than in Luke. This, by the way, was all insincere and disgraceful flattery. And we rejoin Luke's account in verse 22 of chapter 20. It is lawful for us to give tribute. Is it lawful to give uh, tribute to Caesar or not? Now, do we see what they're hoping for here? They're hoping Jesus will say, of course, that God is more worthy than Caesar. So save your treasures for God. Rob Rome of your treasures. Who gave this money to you in the first place? Was it Rome? No, it is God. We are God's people. So this is what they're hoping. He will say, well, of course you don't have to pay taxes. By the way, that's going around today. People avoid income taxes in the name of Jesus. And by the way, it's not biblical. It wasn't biblical then. We pay taxes for the civil services we receive. If you don't want any civil services, then maybe. But it's still disobeying the authority over you. So this is what Jesus says instead. Here's the, the scribes, or the, uh, the disciples of the Pharisees and the Herodians joined forces for the first time probably, I don't know. And here's Christ's response. But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, show me a denarius. Then he asked this question, whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said Caesar's. By the way, Jesus did not choose this illustration of taxes lightly. Of all things that Rome did that exacerbated Israel the most, was what do you think it was? Taxes. And it's the one thing Rome guarded, like every nation. And they were taxed mercilessly by Egypt. The division of Israel and Judah created these two kingdoms by taxes. Solomon dies, his sons take over. And his sons start putting on, start levying taxes. And half the people say, well, we're not going to take this. And they split off. And they become Judah. So the entire kingdom was divided by taxes. That time it wasn't Rome. It was to Israel. So this is always a big issue. Israel, although allowed to coexist within the Roman Empire, were under an unfair system of taxation. Remember Zacchaeus? He was there. He's with Christ right now. He's a chief tax collector that was in Jericho. And he was the worst of the worst because he got percentages of everything plus the tax collectors, everything. So he said to them, then render to Caesar the things that belong to Caesar and to God the things that are God's. In effect, he's saying, my kingdom is not of this world. These coins do not belong to us. They belong to Caesar. So pay your taxes. To pay taxes does not mean you were paying tribute to Caesar. Uh, Caesar did demand that, by the way. But Jesus is saying, just in case you're trying to split hairs here, you are following the law. Therefore, you're not paying tribute to Caesar. The law says you have to pay taxes. And what the Sadducees were hoping for was a you-don't-need-to-pay-no-stinking-income-tax moment. They were hoping that Christ might say something that could be labeled as treasonous against Rome. 
So Jesus gave that response in verse 26. We read this, And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, what would you do? Shut up. Have you ever had to tell someone that? Not Maybe not. Well, I've said that, but sometimes they're just... You, you love the person, you're just saying, you know, the more you talk, the more foolish you look. Please be quiet. You're embarrassing yourself and don't know it. I've done a lot of that. You're embarrassing yourself and don't even know it. They do it. And they left him and went away. In Matthew it says that. They had no words left. This is priceless, is it not? The hit squad in an effort to trick Jesus into saying something that would be the equivalent of committing treason against Rome is stunned into silence by his answer and they walk away. This is how good, this is a good example of how we know that the spiritual and political elite knew who Christ claimed to be but did not recognize him as who he claimed to be. They believed he was a liar and deceiver, and they were shrewd enough with their attacks, they thought, that Jesus would reveal himself to be a fraud. So the disciples of the Pharisees and the Herodians strike out. Out number one. Next up, Sadducees. Same day. Luke twenty twenty seven. There came to him some Sadducees. Matthew twenty two twenty three says says this took place on the same day. The evil alliance knew their time to act was short. That's not scripture, by the way. That's me. Luke tells us uh, the heresy the Sadducees believed. They don't believe in the resurrection, so they try to trick him. Luke twenty twenty seven. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, "Teacher, Moses wrote." For us, that if a man's brother dies... Now, get, now, you just have to kind of buckle your seatbelts here. This is ridiculous. If a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring of his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. The second and the third... and I'd be, I'd be investigating the woman. The second and the third took her. And likewise, all seven left children and died. Left no children and died. It's just ludicrous. Afterward, the woman also died in the resurrection, which they didn't believe in. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as a wife. Now, the Pharisees and Herodians asked him a legal question, right? One about loyalty to Rome. The Sadducees asked him a question of the law concerning marriage in heaven. They were trying to trap him and deceive those in attendance into believing that the law of Moses was in conflict with the concept of resurrection. Really big topic. So now they're asking a question. Okay, if this woman is killed, also if this woman, if this, all seven brothers have died after they married this woman, just a little joke. If all of them have died after they married this woman, then whose wife, whose, whose wife is she in heaven? So they want him to unravel this whole thing. They had taken a law spoken to Moses by God that was designed to make sure the widows in Israel were well cared for and they twisted it into a parody that mocked God. This made Jesus ticked. 
What they were hoping for was a debate that would divide the crowd. Jesus would have none of this. Matthew twenty-two twenty-nine. after they asked this question, this is what he said to them. Uh, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. That was confrontational. I can assure you they were not prepared for this kind of confrontation. I'm going to read just a little bit more here. Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now, he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well. For they no longer dared ask him any questions. Strike one, out number one, Pharisees, Herodians. Out number two, Sadducees. Guess when out number three took place? Resurrection. And that's exactly where Jesus is headed. In God's time and in God's way. You know, as I was... We're going to close. And and as as I was reading through this and reread it again this week, I am struck by the number of excuses that we as believers can come up with. And somehow, somehow we think that as long as I can justify it for me, then God says, you know, I never thought of that. How foolish am I that I didn't take your culture into effect. when you And how foolish of me that I didn't take your upbringing. And how foolish of me that I didn't take your, your socioeconomic status. And how foolish of me not to have provided everything you need so that these things would no longer have influence over you. I'm sorry. People, I think sometimes people want God to say he's sorry. He's done nothing wrong. And not only has he done nothing wrong, everything he has done is out of love for his people. And of course, I look at my own life, and I know things about me that you don't know. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm 39 again this year. 64. And I'm still struggling with this? God, what's wrong with me? He says, everything is wrong with you. There isn't anything that's not wrong with you. But the blood of my son didn't just cover your sin. He took it away. And by the way, Tom, that's not an excuse to sin. That's offensive. It's offensive. Must I continue to pay for my sin? 
No, my son did that, but you'll continue to pay the consequences of your sin. And by the way, those can get worse. Remember when I was in high school? It's, yeah, the older I get, the more I remember high school. I'm not sure. Is this the beginning of a disease that I'm getting and no one's telling me? You know, I remember in the womb. Um, so I remember in high school, I was in the marching band, and uh, which wasn't probably cool at the time, but, you know, I tried football and it was really painful. So, and I remember after this one game, somebody got in a fight. Somebody was mouthing off, and this really big guy played the bass drum. Never mess with a bass drum player, by the way. Played the bass drum. And this other guy was kind of scrawny, and he just taunted this guy and taunted this guy. And they were in the instrument room. There was this big solid door right here. And this, this little guy's going, yeah, 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 yeah. And this guy just finally had enough, and he swung as hard as he could. That kid ducked, and that guy broke two knuckles on that door. And he came out, and it was all the way down to, I about puked, but it came all the way down to here, right? And I'm thinking to myself, these two guys can say sorry to one another all you want. He still has a broken hand. And it takes time to heal. That's us. As people. We do silly things. And there's ramifications. It doesn't mean God loves us any less. Or God isn't present anymore. He, lo- he loves us the same. But you know, it, it's, it's, an, it's an inconvenient, absolute fact that sin causes pain. And not just to you. Everyone you love. So that's what I got out of this. I can, I can swing all I want, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to strike out. Well, here's my next argument. You're striking out again. You're embarrassing yourself, and you don't even know it. Stop. Then I'll try to just stop. For your own sake, stop. We just keep swinging. Lord, if I have to place myself in this scenario of Christ and his followers and the men in the upper room, sometimes I'm with the followers and sometimes I find myself in the upper room. And it's just because of my flesh. And Lord, I thank you for your patience. I thank you for your mercy and your grace. I also thank you for your justice. And Lord, we trust you. Father, I pray that if there's anyone here today that has mocked you, that has made fun of you, that has ignored you, Father, you may break their heart. I say, none of what you have done is beyond my reach. And may they recognize, God, you sent Jesus Christ, your one and only Son, to die on a cross for them. And you raised him again so that they would escape your wrath. And that, Father, they might say, I may not understand it, but I believe that Jesus is the Son of God and I receive Him now. That's salvation. Lord, we love You and praise You and we give You the glory for it's in Jesus' holy and precious name who died and rose for us that we pray. Amen. Blessings. See you next week.